Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen keskin Lu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. And this week we are discussing Irma Beth and Persuasion, two adaptations whose necessity, you could say some have called into question. Sounds ominous. Yeah, but it might not live up to that promise. So we're just trying to find a connection here and it kind of works. It does. It does. How's your week been, love? My week has been okay. I don't know what it is, but I've been having some really weird ass streams lately. And I don't know if it's a some sort of premonition for the future or probably my attempt at lucid dreaming i don't really know probably are you having dairy before bed (laughs) is that like a possible reason oh yeah oh Oh, yeah if you're having like ice cream or cheese or anything dairy related my dreams just go absolutely batshit i think that's a pattern as well yeah wow i i don't think i have been because i'm trying to avoid dairy a little bit more but yeah a lot of things about like being trapped in a oh. house with horrors happening or well, people coming to attack the house. And mm. last night I dreamed that I had the ability to turn into a bird and fly away. And so oh, I did that. And that sounds amazing. Yeah, honestly, the flying part is really great. This is like the, the only way that I guess we'll ever experience the true flight of, of birds or being creatures yeah. who can fly. So, so I mean, it's I, nice. Can I analyze this? So it sounded like okay. the house is Earth. And okay. you feel like it's being attacked by bad characters, which true, <laughs> it definitely is. It is, it is. Um, and your flying away is just your need to escape. And, and maybe go to like a, one of the newly, I don't know, uh, one of the other galaxies or Yeah, whatever. those pictures have done something to me, man. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. They're, 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 taking, they're taking me somewhere else. They're, they're amazing. They're amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, dream analysis. Yeah, I, of course. I'm going to guess you're probably pretty close uh, on the mark. I mean, so. it's, it's hard. It's a pretty easy connection to make if that's <laughs> yeah. what it is. Um, yeah. Possibly. In the meantime, mm-hmm. uh, what did you watch this week? Yeah, so I've been watching Irma Vep, which is on HBO, HBO Max. This is a TV show. And I just want to say this top line, that mm. if you like to call my agent, you'll probably like this. And we'll get into why in a sec. I just need to give a little bit of context as to what this show is about. Because it's okay. a little bit inside a baseball-y. It's not even that inside a baseball. It's just like there's a bit of a background to this that I think will help you greatly with your viewing experience if this is a show that you want to take up. Sure. And um, just for spoiler territory, I guess we'll be talking about everything up through... Episode six. Th- yes. Those are all the episodes. That we yes, exactly. And there's two more, two more episodes to go, and then it's done because it's a limited series. So Irma Vep, I think, is important to explain. That is the name of the femme fatale character. Um, she's like a ringleader to a criminal organization called Les Vampires, which is the French word for them, vampires. Les Vampires was created by Louis Fayad in the 1910s. It's it's like basically a French serial film, which is kind of how they used to make films back in those days, where they had episodic films, essentially. So that's like, that's the historical context. Uh, and this character is someone that is iconic in French film history, because she's like a femme fatale, but the woman that plays her, Misidora, is considered to be like just an iconic French actress uh, that pushed the boundaries. So 
Olivia SAS actually shot a film called Irma Vep about a film production of Le Vampire back in 1996. This film starred Maggie Chung as Irma Vep. Uh, she played like a famous Hong Kong actress, fish out of water on the set of an indie film, which this literally is true. But that was also what was happening behind the cameras. Uh, a little bit of intel, Olivia SAS ended up falling in love with Maggie Chung and they married after this film was made. Uh, they did divorce a couple years after. I promise all of this is relevant. The drama conjoins with the, the actual art itself, which is, I think, the most interesting part about all of this. So this time around, after 1996 film is out, that was also an indie film. They, they like A film buff in general loves SAS, but that was also like an iconic film because of Maggie Chung in a leather catsuit on French rooftops. Like, it's just very, very sick visual. Um, and then this time around, HBO Max's Irma Vep, the one that we're going to be talking about, is based on a TV production about a director who also made an Irma Vep indie film, who also married his Chinese actress lead at the time and divorced her and has now cast an American. You know, despite his ex-wife haunting this production, much like Maggie Chung's Irma Vep is haunting... Alicia Vikander's Irma Vep because Alicia Vikander is Irma Vep in this and plays, well, she, her character is meant to be American, but we know, I think she's Swedish. So that context given, just top line, I think for me is extremely fun to watch, especially if you're a film nerd or even if you're just curious about film production, TV production and how it works, all the types of personalities that you've come across. So have you seen the film, the 1996 film? I have not, and but you have, right? Yeah, so just some context. It's a great, like, I love it. I think I like a lot of SAS's movies, but the one thing that you don't get in that film that you get in this is the insight into the director. Like, the director in the film is very in the background. And I wouldn't even say that you see, you get much of Maggie Chung's Irma either, like, uh, just hmm. her as a character. You don't get much of her either. It's a little bit like it doesn't know who to root itself into, and... I think this TV show just has a better focus on like the themes that it wants to explore. And you can kind of tell that he's done it in a way through his characters much more artfully. But I want to talk about Mira and Alicia Vikander in, in general. This role, did you know that this role was meant for Kristen Stewart? I think I read that somewhere. Or Yeah, because so she had been cast and they announced it. She had apparently scheduling conflicts, they couldn't do it. I guess Kristen was just in the peak of her powers with Spencer and, mm -hmm. you know, Crimes of the Future. Or, uh, so anyway, if you don't know, these two have collaborated previously on a couple of films, Personal Shopper being one, Clouds of Sil Maria being another. And it's just funny. Once you know that, once you know that it was meant to be for her, the character of Mira makes a lot of sense um, because there's a yeah. lot that happens to Mira on the show that has Kristen's backstory a little bit kind of through-lined into it. So. Mira is an American actress that has worked with a lot of IP and just wants like a kind of more artistic role to sink her teeth into, which is, you know, Kristen with the Twilight Saga and then trying to get, you know, work her way out of that IP and into considerable roles for her acting. Mm -hmm. Then there's also Mira's bisexual. So obviously Kristen is gay. My favorite one is that her ex-boyfriend is a famous British actor. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and in this show, he's played by Tom Sturridge and, um, who's now dating a singer, which is obviously Robert Pattinson, who is dating FKA Twigs um, in the kind of like who this is based on. Oh, he's no longer dating Yeah, he's no longer dating her, but like at the time. So, yeah. but you know, they're still making it work with Vikander because I think Alicia Vikander has done a bunch of roles that I think she 
Ex Machina is, I think, the one that most people are familiar with with her. But she also tried to do the whole like Lara Croft Tomb Raider film, which flopped. And mm-hmm. you know, this is coming off the coming off of that for her. So she is also an actress that's trying to like sink her teeth into a meaningful role. So this works, you know, like she can find that connection with Mira quite easily. That's interesting because I I kind of associate Alicia Vikander more with like. I don't know. Her career is like, it's been like very up and down. Like, maybe she's an Academy Award winner, but also how much recognition does she have? Yeah. Uh, Maybe among a certain set, I think among film people and, or maybe like Europeans, there's a lot of appreciation for her. Yeah. Uh, It's always a pleasure when she pops up in like The Green Knight, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Also to like wider audiences, it's just kind of like, uh, who is she? Right. I thought that was an interesting sort of, biography to mm-hmm. pair with this character yeah. uh, in this sort of meta way because he's not like a Maggie Chung who is no. worldwide famous and yeah singular yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's interesting i feel a little bit conflicted about her yeah. casting here i think she's very lithe and like cat like in a way that the character is supposed mm-hmm. to be but mm-hmm. also I don't buy her as an American at yeah, all. Yeah. She doesn't yeah. really try that hard either with the accent. Yeah, no. Um, Angelica Jade Bastian also agrees with you there. <laughs> but, um, I think I actually get this choice because you can't quite seem to put your finger on her. Yeah. She has a, she has a very strong presence on screen, which is why directors cast her. So this yeah. is, this is curious to me. And I, I also like that. Our doubts reflect onto her doubts about herself. I always find it interesting with her because she's married to Michael Fassbender, who is mm, mm-hmm. basically, I guess, the actor that anybody wants to be, you know, like someone that is widely respected by many directors, is a perfect leading man and has a wide range of performances that tap into like all of his skills. So it must be hard to be married to him and not have, you know, and not, I just, I just find like actor couples fascinating mm-hmm. just in terms of like, oh, so you're going to do the whole insecurity and ego thing in two places, <laughs> like just not just your career, but in your house as well. Okay. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So her eyes are very yeah. expressive. Like they're very, yeah. they, they have a beautiful air of mystery. Oh dude. When she's in drag. In one of the episodes oh, where she plays Irma Vep in drag. Great moment. Oh my god. Instant crush. Like, I find her attractive, but when she went into drag, I was like, oh no, what's happening to me? <laughs> Do you have any favorite characters in this? Is there any one of the... Mira aside, mm-hmm. Renee aside... Actually, maybe not Renee aside. If he's your favorite, tell me about it. But do you have a favorite? Um, I like... Vincent Lacoste, who plays Edmund, one of the actors who, within the series, uh, plays like the journalist in. Mm, oh my god! The yeah, series within a series. Holy uh, shit! Just like yeah. a very fun sort of slight asshole, kind of like petulant man baby sometimes, but yeah, also very. Yeah. I don't know, just like fun, a fun character to to see because he's always like complaining about one thing or another. Yeah, he seems to be the moniker for like the annoying actor. Yes. That is constantly trying to bother the director about his role, constantly obsessed with like how his character comes off and like the reflection that it has on him. 
which happens all the time. Do you know what I mean? Like, there are so many actors that will not play a character if the character is not masculine enough. Like, and that used to be a lot of the case back in the day, like the Dustin Hoffman days. Mm. It's just hilarious. And I, and I love it because you can tell that, that it's as they are trying to say something about that type of actor. Yeah, like um, how fucking annoying they are. <laughs> how fucking annoying and how, like, inconsequential whatever it is that they're asking for is. My favorite moniker of actor is Gottfried. Mm, um, also very fun. Very fun. Oh my god, he's hilarious. Like, he is, I guess, the most comedic out of all the actors. Um, he's played by Lars Eidinger, but just the reveal of his addiction is so funny, mm-hmm. uh, especially with the woman that plays the first AD that's trying to figure out how to solve this problem um Mm -hmm. yeah just just fantastic so now that we've kind of put that aside a little bit you know we've done the explanation we've done our character work i really want to get into the overall theme or i guess the overall subject of this which is essentially if you haven't figured it out by now this is super meta like this is a huge meta narrative and like a commentary on culture which is something that I think SAS is very, very familiar with. A lot of his films are based on actors or production, behind the scenes stuff. How do you feel about it? I think it's like clever, but also it's quite demanding of its viewers because mm. you need to have the knowledge of the context behind the meta decisions to be able to mm. fully understand and appreciate, I'd say, more the significance of things as they unfold. Like when yeah. he. When the director reveals, like, oh, actually, I made uh, an earlier version of this as a film with a Chinese actress who I fell in love with. Yeah. Like, to actually get what that means and how significant that is in the story and as, like, a a meta commentary, you need to have that prior knowledge. So, it it is, like, clever, but almost uh, a little bit, again, that's the point. Like, maybe it's a reward for the people, the film... Mm -hmm obsessives and insiders who have that knowledge um it is a little bit insular yeah i i was gonna ask you that but i know that you know you read up on your stuff yeah (laughs) it's it's hard it's hard for for me to like actually ask you as someone that is hasn't seen the film or doesn't know Mm -hmm. as much about it maybe as as you previously did before you might have googled it but you're right it is very inside of baseball and i think it is it's just full of winks and nods like Mm -hmm. and if I mean, I personally think it will still be entertaining. I think it's just like a fun little moment where you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah. He's talking I about th- himself. Like, it, like, SAS is literally, this is, Rene is a character through which he's confessing his own thoughts into and pouring himself into. Yeah. I don't know. And I think I it know. would be like fun Easter egg um, if it yeah. weren't so yeah. integral to like the emotional underpinnings of the story. Yes, yeah. Like, especially with Rene and his his whole deal. Like, Rene's yeah. entire deal. And, yeah, yeah. Um, everything to do with his wife, with um, his obsession, with mm-hmm. his breakdowns, and even the way they, like, splice together, like, um, footage from Maggie Chung playing yes. Irma Vep, like, into yeah. certain parts of the, the film and his memories yeah. of that. Like, yeah. those all seem to carry such emotional weight that yeah it's kind of a shame that not mm-hmm. everyone gets to fully realize that yeah. and experience that but yeah like the other elements of it just like the shooting of the film itself that's fun and i think anyone can yeah get that and enjoy uh like tv production as as it's laid yeah. out here and it it does this thing of like 
including uh, shots and scenes of the original Le Vampire um, footage. So you get to see a scene back how, how it was in the 1910s before they shoot it in the current day on this fake TV production um, mm-hmm. that they've got going on. And then like, for me, I just I just really enjoy the meta commentary of film, of TV, because they bring it up and the way that we get to see a director's thoughts about a set, you know, like his emotional exploration of a set as well, because SAS is, he used to be a film critic. So it's not like he's thinking about this just as a creator. He's also thinking about this as a cultural commentator. So you really get to see that in not only this this TV show, but in his previous films as well. And I just think that it's always nice to have a director that is asking these questions and then also just presenting them on screen um, for everybody to watch and also think about. Like I recently watched Nonfiction, which is his film that's on Hulu, and that's about literature and how literature is like moving into modern times and, and what that means. Um, and it's also like a, an entertaining film. And I don't know, every now and again you need, I think it's always important for some filmmakers to be thinking about this and it's always fun when you get one that's like, yeah, just throw it all on the screen, bro. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So I'm having a good time. Yeah. Um, I am like kind of surprised that it's like not a show that you would naturally think like studios be clamoring to green light. I know, yeah. It's, yeah. A, we- it's a weird one. Yes. I mean, it's A24 production, so I get why they did this because it does, that, this is some shit that A24 would do. Mm-hmm. And and I, I I guess teaming up with HBO for it also makes sense. Um, like if out of any of the, the streamers, yeah. Yeah, they were going to do it. Anyway, I want to give a quick special shout out to the music selection. I think it's excellent. And finally, I think costume is very important to talk about. Not just because Nicola Gesquier, who is the creative director of Louis Vuitton, is in charge of costume, which is nuts and what a great get. But... Mainly because Irma Vep is so iconic for her catsuit. Um, mm-hmm. It was iconic back in the 1910s because it was so revealing. It was pretty sheer. I think it was made from some kind of silk. And then Maggie Chung's is definitely like a BDSM version of that where she was just playing a, like she had a leather catsuit on and there was like a squeak to it. And you could tell she kind of looked like a dom, which was gorgeous and she looked amazing in it and i think this time around alicia vikander's irma vep is in a velvet like a like a midnight velvet mm-hmm. um i love the velvet i like the i think it it is like an interesting choice to go with this kind of velvet because mm-hmm. you do associate technically uh most of the time cat suits with probably something like bdsm light and yeah. The, yeah. the leather and the the sheen mm-hmm. the glossiness yeah. So going with something that is more subdued, much like Alicia Vikander herself, I think, mm-hmm. uh, is an interesting choice. And it yeah. looks really good on her. Yeah. I mean, this TV show, listen, I look forward to an episode every week and I mostly have fun. And I like that it doesn't take itself too seriously, even though it does talk about very serious things. It's starting to get a little bit weird, especially in this mm-hmm. latest episode. We're veering into like surreal. Yeah. Um. And I'm enjoying that. I kind of like it. Like, yeah, let's get fucking weird. All right, Jenny, your turn. What did you watch this week? I watched Persuasion, yes. which is a film that maybe a lot of people are going to be talking about. <laughs> yeah, They already are talking about this. So yes. this is a Netflix film. It's the first technically like feature film adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion, which is the last novel 
she completed before she died. Mm-hmm. So this Netflix version is directed by Carrie Cracknell, the screenplay by Ronald Bass and Alice Victoria Winslow. It stars Dakota Johnson as the main character and Elliot. And if you are familiar with Persuasion, and I haven't read the book actually, mm-hmm. but you can correct me if I'm wrong. I know you're 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 an Austin head. No, no, I am. But this is the only Austin that I haven't read. Oh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, maybe you'll I'll get read on it though after this. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, the basic plot, as I understand it, is mostly kept the same. Mm-hmm. So, as a young woman, and Elliot was persuaded by her family uh, and friends to reject her one great love, Frederick Wentworth, who is played in this version by Cosmo Jarvis, mm-hmm. uh, because at the time he was poor and titleless. And then around eight years later, when she, uh, Anne Elliot is basically considered a spinster for the times, like fading beauty, like pastor bloom, yeah. she crosses paths again with Wentworth, and the two kind of struggle to reconcile, ultimately, mm-hmm. and to come back to each other, uh, because there is a lot of anger and resentment and pride built up between them yeah so that's the basic plot as i said it's kept pretty much intact um this is also sort of set vaguely in the regency era in the in the film version so mm-hmm. uh that is also supposed to be kind of in line with some idea of what we think of for austin but aside from that i think not much else is left mm. intact according to Many, many angry Jane Austen fans and critics who are mostly across the board, with some exceptions, negatively reviewing this film. Yes. Uh, getting a lot of pans right yes. now. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. Pellin, what's your initial take on this so far, especially as someone who you, you may not have read Persuasion, but you mm. kind of get Jane Austen. You like and appreciate Jane Austen, uh, and you, you get the, her spirit and sensibility. We're losing the recipes, mate. <laughs> and I'm blaming Bridgerton. That's that's how I feel that's about it. That's very funny because yeah. I was yes, I Bridgerton, I was going to bring that up. <laughs> yeah. Yes, tell me tell me more, tell me more about that. So <sighs> far be it from me to defend period piece films because we have so many of them and I would much prefer to have original stories that are based in many other different timelines that don't require the women to wear corsets, you know what I mean? Like, I would prefer that. But if you're going to do it, and they are also very entertaining, uh, there's a reason why they keep getting made. It's because we love to see this shit, right? We love to kind of be transported into a world where everything seems so fucking fussy all the time. Be fussy. This has to be fussy. Like, you cannot make this... Like, you can't make it modernized just for accessibility purposes. The whole point is that it's inaccessible. The whole point is that this is a world that seems far and far out of reach. The whole point is that, like, we feel like we don't talk like these people, but we get the sentiment and we get why we are emotionally connected to them nevertheless. Mm -hmm. So if you deviate away from that, then what's the point of even making it? Then just go full modern adaptation. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, just to have it be set now. Which we've also done, you know, like with Clueless and mm-hmm. many other films. A lot of, a lot of other, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. That, that's just, that's my main takeaway. Um, that's, that's very so. fair. And I think it's one that is shared by a lot of people with, you know, similar sentiment. Yeah. The problem I think that a lot of people are feeling is that, like you said, like the film has sort of dithered about its like decision, its mm-hmm. decisiveness to mm-hmm. how to adapt. 
this source uh, story. So yeah. it's neither depicting the source material faithfully, um, both in like the language, the characterization, the the era, but but it's not doing that. But it's also not going the other way in translating the spirit into a more modern take. So yeah, yeah, that's the part that I have beef with. It's the yeah. second part. Like I think adapting a book faithfully is sticky because there's a reason why books are books you know like mm-hmm. if you try and translate it into film it doesn't nec- they're just two different mediums and you really have to figure out a way to translate you know like you can't just faithfully adapt a book it's going to be a boring fucking film it's going to be an adaptation either way like exactly. that is the act of translation exactly exactly but translation yeah the task of translation the and there are like yeah. so many debates about translation itself and and what we do to language but it comes down to like are you going to sort of just try to purely translate literally or mm-hmm. are you just going you're going to take a looser approach yeah. and maintain the meaning and the spirit and the yes. soul of the original exactly but in the uh new way that this other audience will understand yep, yep. and exactly. so this one i think the most one of the most noticeable ways that it does not do that is by Littering the speech with all sorts of anachronistic lines yeah. and not just that, but like online lingo. Yeah. That is going to age itself. Like it's this online lingo. It's, it's stuff of, you know, the moment, maybe even previous moment. It's even mm-hmm. a little bit past its shelf life. Yeah. Um, so Justin Chang of the LA Times, he had a really great, uh, line in his review of this film, oh, which is so a negative good. view. <laughs> he so says good. basically persuasion, this version of persuasion. Um, appears to have lifted sentences from the novel and fed them through some kind of Instagram filtering, catchphrase generating, text summarizing idiot bot. Period. Damn. He's right. Yeah. He's and, right. <laughs> do you yeah. have like a like the an example of the most egregious thing a line from this that you think is just like it really does it for you is a prime example of the way that has mangled some of Austin's language. Well, Justin Chang also mentioned it, but it's the part where her sister goes, I'm an empath. Oh, God, yeah. Just, what are we doing here? Yeah. I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> like, anyway, that, that that's the most egregious one to me, just because it is so... It's so pointed. noticeable. It's yes. so pointed. How about you? Do you have one? Do you have an example? That's probably up there for me. Yeah. Um, but I also uh, really hate the... There's this point where they say, if you're five in London, you're a oh, 10 yeah. in Bath. Yeah. So stupid. And it's so stupid. Again, they don't even fully commit to this because yeah. they try to maintain some kind of Regency, like generic British speech for yeah. a lot of the film. It's just like they like drop in these lines as if they, they think it's going to be so funny or so mm. this is the part that's going to be like quote tweeted or like, um, excerpted on on tiktok whatever and people are gonna be like oh my god that's so funny and it's exactly it's so dated it's so i'm embarrassed because it's like why do they think that contemporary audiences are so stupid yeah that we need to dumb down or translate her speech into like millennial gen z speech like this yes and it's it's also it's all i think it's also because like like there, there is some truth to it where because i think of bridgerton there is now like a tiktok social media um screenshotting generation like period piece dramas in general especially adaptations of like books based on that time 
for the most part, they're for mothers. They're for mums. Like, it's mum core. Like, they love this shit. And also, you know, for people like in our generation that love these books as well. But we're kind of also not into it anymore. So it, it, I think they're just trying to make it a little bit more accessible to the younger generations. It's just that, like, you could do... You remember when, like, Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette came out and we all just lost mm-hmm. our fucking minds? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's, like, an adaptation that is not necessarily of a book but of a person and of a time but it was just so you know the spirit was captured so well and it's not like we were checking for period pieces like for our generation they were having to modernize it into oblivion for us to even watch it or like know anything about a shakespeare play that we'd never even heard of or like you know like at the time and it's just we were watching that and we were loving it and Marie Antoinette came along and we were like, holy shit, this is also amazing. Like, we don't need everybody in modern clothes for it to be fun for us to watch. Yeah. So I think I'm not against anachronisms or ahistorical period films and shows. Like you said, Marie Antoinette is a great example. The Favorite, a great example. The Great. But there, I think, especially with the rise of Bridgerton, there is a, a trend towards anachronism for the sake of anachronism exactly it's some kind of shortcut for actual like clever humor yep or creativity yep. or subversion yep uh it's it's a way to to pander more or less to the imagined or real palettes of these contemporary audiences pandering that's yeah. what it is yep yeah and i do think like you said persuasion at this point is basically like a slightly more restrained bridgerton yeah i don't know there's so many good ways to do this like we named those good examples i think if we're talking about in the realm of color blind or color conscious aka diverse casting in historic or or period things like there are also very good ways to do that like green knight is a great example just like of a sublime color conscious like diverse period historical sort of film that is just it's not sloppy. It's not silly. Yeah. It is just so exceptional. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But then we get stuff like this or Bridgerton or um, I was not a fan either of the David Copperfield adaptation from like a couple oh, years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. also starred Dev Patel. Like they're not done well. They they don't capture the the spirit, the soul of whatever they're trying yeah. to do. It's It's more like a, it feels more like a trendy sort of thing. Yeah. And, how That's did, fine, but Netflix is just like doing too much of this. It is, yeah, it definitely is. How did you feel about the fourth wall break? Oh, the fleabag style. Yeah. That is another thing that yeah. is very noticeable about this. Yeah. I think obviously that they're trying to do this as a way to capture the interiority of the character who it's easier to do, you know, you get that from books and novels, right? You can read what these characters are thinking or what the protagonist is thinking, yeah. which is difficult to do often in, in a film adaptation of that. I don't think I would mind that so much if the things that this character was saying were not so insufferable. stupid, like stare- yeah. yeah, insufferable yeah. all the time. Like yeah. you can have a flea bag moment. You can have this like fourth wall bre- breaking, but like so much of what I understand has happened to this character um, from what other people have said is that, they have turned her from a very mature, introspective, like uh, restrained sort of character. Like on the outside, she's cool and composed. While mm-hmm. inside, everything can let loose. So, but they basically turn her into a a version who's like a 
Like, uh, several reviews have called her basically someone, a stereotypical, like, heroine of a, a mid-tier 90s or early aughts uh, rom-com heroine, yes. or a manic pixie dream girl, yeah. or yeah. something like that. And right. that's, I think, what I have more of a problem with. I feel bad for Dakota. I think she just had a bad read on this one. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you think of Miss Dakota Johnson with her uh, very contemporary curtain bangs and all. Um, I mean, she looks great. I do love that she was like, absolutely not, I'm not changing my hair for no one. You know, her appeal is that she's like an introspective, mysterious brunette. You know, like that's why we find her hot. What That's mm-hmm. why we think she has a presence on screen. Yeah, it yeah, really, like so many of the characters she plays. Yeah, like it really worked for her on The Lost Daughter. Um, mm-hmm. And it also worked for her on Cha Cha Real Smooth. Um, maybe too well. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, just... I get picking her for this role. Um, I just think that she's just uh, not necessarily too good of an actor. I think she's just a different flavor to the rest of the film. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. It felt like, yeah, it, it felt a little bit like she got lost on her way to the set that she yeah. needed to be on and ended up on this set instead. Well, I agree with, with you. And I, I think the script didn't do her any favors. Like, yeah. really, she was handed kind of in insufferable character to play mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways and yeah i know people argue about it all the time they're like is she actually a good actor or not i think i do think she's a good actor yeah, i just totally. think this is i think this is a mismatch and i think yep. um the writing was a huge mismatch so she couldn't transform that into something else yeah you know what i did right after i finished watching this film um i what? watched i watched a jane austen adaptation that i hadn't seen before emma directed oh, by yeah. autumn de wilde who stars anya taylor joy mm-hmm. i watched that right afterwards it's it's very long but like that's just an example of how you do it it was just really yeah. funny comparing these two films it was just like holy shit here's one that literally that was pandering like you said to a generation that wasn't even ch- anyway and then you've got one that just like minded its business and did what it wanted to do and it's just so much more luscious like it just felt more rich um mm-hmm. Have you seen Emma? Have you seen that one? I have. Yeah. And I think it's pretty popular too. That's yeah. like an adaptation. Yeah. So yeah. I yeah, you would think like looking at the success of, of, of that or it, and it takes like it's sort of like it doesn't shy away from making it its own film, like with a yeah. especially with the visuals, with the design, everything. Um yeah. but yeah, it is an example of a successful of a successful recent Austin adaptation that yeah. didn't have to veer into this sort of territory. Yeah. And it has half the cost of sex education in it, so. <laughs> <laughs> it's also uh, fun. British royalty. Indeed, point, right? indeed. Yeah. Um, I'm going to end with like a couple things I did like about this adaptation, mm-hmm. which uh, mm-hmm. are like sort of minor, but yeah. I thought the actress playing the younger sister Mary, um, yeah. so the actress is Mia McKenna Bruce. <gasps> amazing very very committed yep so funny yeah she's hilarious it's funny because obviously dakota's accent isn't the best like she's she has it like 95 percent there but there are times where she slips up Mm uh me and mckenna bruce is like you could tell that she's not necessarily working class but she doesn't talk like the queen's english which is like how these people (laughs) would have been talking at that time so it's nice to hear her like little bit of like class roughness come out i loved her i also liked henry golding yeah as this like total cat like yeah. a very sly <laughs> dick uh, yeah more or less yeah he was great yeah yeah and he looked great too i mean the looked all great. black get up was amazing Just, yeah yeah i found him also like a lot more compelling than cosmo jarvis's wentworth oh yeah he, uh, wentworth was just like 
I didn't yeah. really see the appeal. I didn't, you know, I couldn't get a sense of like why they still gravitated towards each other and yeah. like what kept them just like so drawn towards each other. Yeah. He is handsome, especially like he has like a very Regency handsomeness. Quite um, a unique. Very unique. Sort of but I, I, you know, there's a scene where they were at the, they were at Lyme on the seaside mm. and they're talking mm-hmm. and they want to be friends or whatever. And I couldn't take him seriously because he just, like, it felt like he was taking it a bit too, like, that role of being the Regency guy a little bit too seriously. Very, like, pining. Very, like, yeah. eyes like, wide. Ha- like, like, guffawing yeah. almost. Like, it's, yeah. anyway. Anything else that, that sort of stuck around in your mind as, as one small thing to like? I say all of this, but it isn't insufferable. Like, I did get through it, okay? It wasn't like I was, I was just, like, nitpicking and, like, the nitpicks started to say something about like the wider problem of what was going on which i think is what really annoys me the most like mm-hmm. you know there, there was news that they're gonna make more films like the writers that did this are gonna make more fi- more jane austen films because they're big fans and that just like annoyed me because it was like don't don't like you've had your fun just leave it alone um <laughs> but they're obviously <laughs> going to i just uh i overall did have a decent time like it, it was like an average to f- average fun that i had so that's like the positive thing for me is like you can get through it pretty okay if you look too hard at it it starts to feel like a waste do you know what i mean yeah like maybe if you in your mind you divorce it from the jane austen origins and you take it as another bridgerton-esque like exactly uh rom-com type of period piece then yeah i guess it's a serviceable sort of film but when you're trying to sell it explicitly on its tie to Jane Austen and Persuasion, that I think is where it is going to fall apart for a lot of people who were hoping for otherwise. So for Culture Notes this week, we are tapping into theatre drama, which has been unfolding this, this week. Something related to Beanie Feldstein, Leah Michelle and a theater show called Funny Girl. So I just like my Twitter was alive for one day and I had no idea what was going on. So could you please give me a little bit of context, Jenny? Sure. And I will have this disclaimer up here that I'm not a huge theater person myself. Yeah, neither one of us are. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy the occasional show, but it's it's just not my world necessarily. No. Um, Me neither, yeah. Nevertheless, I, I do have some ambient knowledge of what's going on partly again twitter partly work news reasons but um this is this is about a film star slash two tv stars so we're listening yeah yeah okay so uh i'll give you like a a brief rundown as as far as i know and we'll link a couple of uh possibly useful explainers in our subject as well okay so basically there is this musical funny girl it's a pretty well-known musical you know barbara streisand it is supposed to be like a star making role for her in this so there was a revival plan for this for a while now. When, at one point, Ryan Murphy was attached to it. Then it sort of fell out. And then now it was actually revived. And mm. the person they cast as the main character, Fanny Bryce, was Beanie Feldstein, who mm. we all know, I think. A lot of people enjoy her in films like Booksmart or whatever, mm-hmm. Lady Bird. You know, she's a respected yep. sort of actor. Um, I think people did not really know much about her vocal capabilities, but you know, mm-hmm. she had her, she had her chance. Um, yeah. and 
while this casting was happening, like people were basically joking the whole time um, that Leah Michelle, who we all know from Glee, had basically been publicly auditioning for Funny Girl for years, literal years. She performed several of the songs on Glee. She continued to kind of pursue, like, make the case for herself mm-hmm. as as Fanny Bryce, even after Glee ended. I'm reading this Vox explainer, and it's, it's very funny. It says, she, Leah Michelle makes it clear she is ready to do the show at a moment's notice. Um, <laughs> so that's how desperate she was for this to happen. Yes. And yeah. Beanie Feldstein, of course, she she was in films. She did some Broadway things, very small roles. But after Lee Michelle was accused of bullying her co-workers and maybe being mm-hmm. kind of uh, a little bit dense when it comes to things like race in particular. Yeah. Um, yeah. She sort of became a black sheep, I think. Like, people joke about her a lot, but I think people also really do not like her for a lot of uh, probably yeah. legitimate reasons. So Beanie ended up getting this lead role in Funny Girl, and Lee Michelle's name was trending on Twitter at the same time, and it became a whole thing, a drama of like Lee Michelle having to grit her teeth and congratulate yeah. Beanie on her Instagram or whatever, which is <laughs> just a very funny image. Um, anyway, Funny Girl ended up premiering, and Beanie Feldstein's voice was probably not a great fit for it. A lot of the reviews were not very positive let's say this um there's one by the new york times you said about beanie you root for her to raise a roof but she only bumps against it a little (laughs) which is just like excellent excellent writing but yeah yeah she is not doing well the show i think is suffering a little bit as a result it didn't get Mm -hmm. a tony award nomination and elsewhere lee michelle is still like lurking in the in the shadows like waiting for her turn at this so in mid-june funny girl announced that beanie is leaving six months after the debut uh and then a lot of speculation about who's gonna take over people of course would love to see lee michelle because it's funny mostly just that it's funny (laughs) and then uh yeah after there's been some reporting uh like i know at my workplace gawker like one of our reporters, Olivia Craighead, she reported that Leah Michelle was about to take over for Beanie, and apparently that helped or maybe contributed to sparking a, a shitstorm internally within the production. Oh shit! And Beanie announced out of nowhere on her Instagram that she's leaving Funny Girl even earlier than originally planned. So she's <gasps> leaving at the end of July. Good for her. Probably get some out stuff of there. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Leah and Michelle, the official announcement came that she will be taking over as Fanny Bryce. So. She got everything she wanted, and I don't know what wow. is so funny about this all, but it is very funny. In that is hilarious, yeah. It's, it's a very theater kid sort of drama that exactly. is just like so captivating. So the thing that the thing that I've always found hilarious, I, I used to watch Glee. I think I tapped out after season two though because I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, <laughs> the thing that always fascinated me about Leah Michelle in general, how she is the most pure theater kid ever yeah extremely talented extremely self-serious very also insufferable yeah <laughs> very insufferable like insufferable also like the way that she works is very problematic and it's like she thinks she can be a diva because she's you know because she knows she's talented like she knows that she's got the voice mm-hmm. and the on-screen presence 
And like the people like that exist, don't get me wrong. You know, the the term diva is there for a reason. You know, a lot of male singers that are very talented are also divas. Um, it's just that like it's the way that like especially in 2020 like everybody turned on her and it's yeah. because they already didn't like her because even the theater people that are huge glee fans thought that she was insufferable but it's like well you got to give it to her she can sing you know mm-hmm. and it's just the fact that like the whole you got to give it to her she can sing is the reason why she's got this role um <laughs> yeah. now because it's like oh yeah shit we actually do need someone that can belt it out on stage and bless Beanie, I feel so bad, but I'm so glad she's getting out of there, man. This must be such a knock on her confidence, but yeah. listen to me. Beanie, if you're listening, come back to the fold, honey. Like, just come back to film and TV. Fuck this theater shit. Like, <laughs> like literally, don't worry about musicals. Are you kidding me? Like, we know you can sing. You might not be able to belt it out the same way Leah does. Come back to where we all love you. It's it's just very funny. And I think people are having, like, a blast on social media joking about this more than i learned about the meme that uh leah michelle can't read this this theory so it's i'm so thankful for that funny yeah it's so funny i think someone tweeted like leah michelle isn't responding to all the accusations that she can't read but i remembered it's because she can't read them um <laughs> and it just it's so funny yeah oh, a man. lot of great meme and, and humor potential in this which is definitely definitely something that that well, we need even if it's hey a little bit of the sacrifice of some real real people with real feelings but bring back drama with high stakes yeah bring them back <laughs> i love it uh so that is us this week uh let us know if you're watching any of the things we talked about or if anything else is on your radar a show a film whatever we we take all suggestions for anything um thank you to everyone who has been writing in to criticism is dead at gmail dot com or mm-hmm. leaving us nice uh messages or other things like criticism is dead on twitter and instagram um yeah. and also the people who've been leaving nice reviews in our apple podcasts and other podcast platforms uh we really love reading them so yeah we do yeah it's like i will send each other screenshots and it will make our day so yeah. thank you so much yeah thank you to everyone who's doing that and, and giving us a smooth five stars um as always you can check out our Substack, criticismisdead.substack.com for extended show notes and links and otherwise yeah just keep on listening rating reviewing uh hyping us up to whoever you want uh we really yeah. appreciate it thank you thank you so much see you next week Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny Shijong. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Lu.